Kia ora, I'm Jessie Chang and today on The Detail. 5,000 people, a third of the town, sick with gastro after Campylobacter contaminated their water supply. Four people died. Everyone in this community knows someone who's sick or is sick themselves, has a child, a grandparent, somebody that's sick. I mean, and people are going down like flies every day. One in five people is drinking substandard water. 70% of people in small towns drink tap water that doesn't meet the Ministry of Health quality standards. That includes places like Punakaiki, Waitomo Caves and Milford Sound. The number of times sewage overflowed into the environment has jumped by 379% last year as ageing infrastructure struggles to cope with record rains. We all accept that our infrastructure in New Zealand is tired. Central government and local government have agreed that public water services, including drinking water and wastewater, have been facing urgent challenges. Water, specifically water reform, and the government's Three Waters programme. The government will spend more than three quarters of a billion dollars to help local councils fix ageing water infrastructure. Are our public water supply systems finally going to get the sort of upgrade they need? But the funding for improving services comes with strings attached, and not everyone is buying into it. Some are questioning if it's council amalgamation by stealth, there are fears that small water providers will get swamped, and at this stage there's a lack of detail on exactly what projects will benefit. Local governments tended to be quite resistant, and I think what we're seeing happen here is the result of years of frustration at a central government level that it hasn't somehow been able to make progress. The waters are very turbulent at the moment. It's not calm and there's whirlpools of different aspects floating around and it's a rough sea and a long way to go before any degree of smooth waters in the transition to a new way of managing water in New Zealand. It's one of those, I guess, sleeper issues that bubbles away beneath the surface but when you poke it, it awakes and roars. That's Peter McKinley, an independent local government consultant. He says while people do take interest in water rights and threats of privatisation, water reform is a different story. For most people, it's almost a closed book. Uh, there'll be awareness of, of the occasional things such as the Havelock North Campylobacter outbreak, but the arguments about the future management of water, questions of scale, the nature of the technical staff required to run a safe water and wastewater system, those things, I think, pass people by. If you had to try and convince someone that this was an important issue and actually they need to um, really take the time to figure out what's going on in their own council, what would you say to them? I would ask them to think about what level of performance they want. Uh, do they want a safe drinking water supply? Do they want to know that wastewater is disposed of in, in an environmentally appropriate way? Uh, do they want to know that they can swim at the beach? And I would then ask them if they want those things, uh, who do they think should do it and who do they think should pay for it? For the most part, local councils have been the ones to foot the bill for water infrastructure, of course using ratepayer money. 
We're talking about millions and millions of dollars, bills that many councils have been struggling to fund. And then came the Havelock North gastro outbreak in 2016. Havelock North remembers it like it was yesterday. Spewing and sort of shitting all over the place and wasn't very good. I spent two days in a bed. Some long-lasting side effects from being affected by the water. Four people died and more than 5,000 people fell sick after drinking water from contaminated boards. It sparked a full inquiry with 51 recommendations to improve the safety of drinking water. And that's led to what is called the Three Waters Reform Programme, the government's plan to get the country's drinking water, wastewater and stormwater up to scratch. It includes setting up a new national regulator, Tomata Arawai, which will ensure water standards are being met across New Zealand. And to help cash-strapped councils to meet those standards, a $761 million funding pool was announced by the government last month. But there is a catch. For councils to access the money, they will have to commit to the government's wider water reform programme. And they have until the end of this month to do so. If councils commit, they then have to sign a Memorandum of Understanding, or MOU, with the government. Peter McKinley sees some fish hooks in that. What they're signing up to is an obligation in good faith to join in a discussion about restructuring of water and wastewater services. They're not signing up to a commitment to actually do that. And that's, that's an important distinction. So the fear I think that a number have is how's the process going to play out in practice? Is government going to be more directive than the MOU suggests? That, of course, is something that government can do quite independently of whether or not people have signed it. And I think also a concern, especially amongst smaller councils, about loss of influence over what happens in their community, about the interests of small water systems. A number of our water and wastewater systems, especially those based in cities, are quite substantial. Mm. Uh, they're run by teams of people from council and elsewhere. But there are a number of small local schemes and hundreds of thousands of households across the country who are on really what are community schemes rather than council schemes but a sense that this process is going to run over all of those as well. And what does that mean in terms of cost, which is a particular worry, especially if single national standards are set for water quality. So there are basically a lot of unknowns at this stage about what this will all look like, except the fact that we know there'll be a smaller amount of people controlling the overall management of things. That's that's an inference that I think can be drawn. Part of it goes back to what kind of entities are set up to manage water and wastewater. Uh, to whom are they accountable? Uh, who sets their objectives? Uh, what powers do consumers have? You can look, for example, at the situation in Scotland where there's a consumer charter and there are basic standards that uh, Scottish Water is required to meet and automatic penalties, compensations to consumers if it doesn't meet them. Uh, so are we going to have a regime of that kind that gives consumers a sense of control? Who is going to say 
okay, management of water is not just a technical issue, it's a public health issue, it's a critical issue for iwi Māori. How's that going to be handled? All of this is you know, up in the air at the moment. On the coalface, does this mean, you know, for, for someone in a household, if, if your pipe breaks down or if there's weird discolouring in, in your water, what does that actually mean? Would, would you then go to this new authority that is being set up, this new regulator, for them to fix it? It's likely that the same responsibility for quality and management would re- or at least the responsibility would rest with the operator, whoever the operator is. I don't think that'll change. Okay. But the, the question of how you access it and how, what response you get and what rights you have and what influence you can exercise could change quite markedly. What do you mean by that? How, how would that change? Well, if the council supplies your water and is making a mess of it, at least you've got the opportunity at the next elections to do something about it. And in the meantime, a lot of pressure can be put on councils through media. If it's a major entity looking after, say, a million New Zealanders, Mm. it's likely to be a little bit more distant. It may not be so easy to influence it. It's quite likely you won't have any voice in in the sense of electing who's responsible for controlling it. Loss of power, really, to the public then? It could be. And that could be if there was an appropriate consumer charter and enforceable consumer rights and ideally a separate water commissioner, equivalent, say, to the Office of Water in the UK, then you would have some ongoing influence. So the devil's in the detail. And the real issue, from my perspective for government and for councils is to work through what really matters to their communities and how can they work with communities to satisfy communities that the things they're concerned about will actually be addressed Mm. and that they will have ongoing influence over what, for most people, is a very critical service. First tranche of government funding has two parts. Councils that sign up will directly receive money according to population and size. Then there will be a regional cash pool where councils make submissions on how to best use it. Councils can opt in later on but will likely have to sign a binding contract. They can also opt out but will lose any further funding that may become available. Regardless, Everyone will have to ensure they meet the new standards, which Peter McKinley says are still a little vague. The approach being taken is that the standards will need to be sufficiently high to meet modern public health and environmental requirements and that the regulator appears to be taking the view that those in practice will be non-negotiable, that non-compliant providers or systems will have time to get up to speed, but if they don't, that the regulator ultimately will intervene. In fact, when the powers of the regulator were first announced, there was something of a sense that this could, in effect, amount to amalgamation by stealth, because the ultimate power of the regulator for non-compliance would actually be to require merger. That would be a very extreme step to take, but certainly the intention is that the regulator does have some very real teeth. Nobody wants another Havelock North. Are councils mostly for this then? Because it seems like, you know, that that is one of the 
only few ways forward. I mean, if you're against this, you'd lose funding and you'd have to make up money to try and meet these new standards anyway. I'd be very surprised if many councils don't sign up for phase one because in, if, in essence it's saying here's some free money to sort out some problems that you've got with your current reticulation and so on and the requirement is that you join seriously in a discussion about the future of water and wastewater services. To me that seems an attractive option although the downside is that this is the beginning of a process where it's clear the government's end objective is the creation of some perhaps three, four, five entities controlling water and wastewater supply across the whole of New Zealand. Mm. And that's making councils quite nervous. Uh, it's worrying a number of smaller councils for a whole variety of reasons, including simply reduction in their own function. One of the mayors said the tiny places in our region They'll just disappear off the map. They'll just disappear off the radar when you've got a huge organisation down the road. Susan Botting is a journalist for the Northern Advocate in Whangarei. She's also the local democracy reporter for Northland, a region that's wary of what's being put up as the saving grace for water management. There's no disagreement with the sentiment of addressing water quality issues. However, I think... The reservations are particularly unique to this part of New Zealand because we have the country's biggest city with 1.75 million people just down the road and then we have a region with around about 180,000 people and I think it's a bit of a David and Goliath sort of analogy and the makeup of those two components is quite different. Mm. And I think there's a thought that the opportunity exists for the smaller region to get lost in the voices of the bigger region. And there are many models in the three-water world at the moment about how things might unfold and shape up. Well, there's more than 50 or 70 providers nationally in, in terms of councils, and um, the idea is to reduce them to three or four or five, half a dozen maximum. So then the discussion also becomes, well, where is the top of the north water entity going to be? Is it going to be Northland and Auckland? Is it going to be Northland, Auckland, Waikato, Bay of Plenty? Um, I think in Northland as well, there are around about 1,000 non-council water providers. This is private water providers. So if you... 1,000? Yeah, if you have... Wow. Say you've got a bore at your place and you provide water to two or three other people, instantly that becomes a private water scheme. Mm. Um, And so how does that transition into this big picture? There are also questions around marae. I think there's probably around about 350 marae in Northland. And what happens as far as requirements of these guys too uh, in, in the local communities And then there are also implications for the actual role and responsibilities of a local council. I would say roughly one-third of council assets in Northland, and maybe a bit more of the operational side of things, is to do with three waters. Right, so managing water. Yes, 
wastewater, stormwater, drinking water. So if that function was effectively sliced out of council operations, what does that mean to what it is to be a council? A council will still have the same costs to a degree of running its organisation, but a large chunk of its asset value and operational income through things like water rates, that will disappear potentially. And so the thought is how to transition that. And then the question follows on from there. So does that mean that local government transitions into something different, which might become more regional or bigger? Mm. So there are far-reaching implications of what on the face looks like one thing but could be something else. In fact, one of the leaders described the Three Waters Review as, to me as a Trojan horse. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, it's something bright and shiny that comes in looking like this, but it's actually got something else going on behind the scenes. We'll come back to Susan in a moment. But first, let's talk about residents and their vote on water reform. Peter McKinley questions the effectiveness of public consultation. Public consultation is not engagement with the public. It's a matter of stating a proposal, providing an opportunity, usually a month, uh, for people to make submissions, a further opportunity for them to appear before the council, and then the council makes its decision. It's a very formal and quite often, unfortunately, tick-box exercise. Engagement, gaining the confidence of the public and understanding what their issues are and how people might like to see those addressed is a very different matter. It's about building legitimacy. It's about taking time. Uh, My own personal view is that the government's objectives are at significant risk because they will not have the confidence of the public. And if you look back, attempts to merge major services have been going on in New Zealand for at least the past 10 years, if you go back to initially uh, the previous national government's attempt to promote the creation of unitary authorities based on regions. Uh, And that failed dismally, and it failed dismally because of public attitudes. Officials, politicians had not understood the degree of attachment that people have and their reaction when major changes imposed without their consent. Because, of course, there's always the rates issue. In terms of the idea of the sort of super-regional authorities, um, I live in Christchurch, right? Uh, Is there a risk as a Christchurch ratepayer that I will have to end up subsidising ratepayers in smaller council districts, whether it be Waimakariri or Selwyn or Hiranui? Um, there is there is that possibility, but there's also the possibility that Wamakariri and Huranui might be subsidising Christchurch. So it could it could cut both ways. But part of and, and it's still being developed, as I understand it, part of the government policy around funding this is to offset those um, what would be perhaps inequities. And then there's social media. Social media will have a field day. The question of what could happen with water under a new structure and a new set of owning entities provides wonderful opportunity for people to promote. This is actually very much about uh, a conspiracy to privatise or hand the water over to some offshore company or whatever it might be. And 
unless you've got the public on side and aware of really what's going on and what the benefits are, it's very hard to counter that kind of stuff. So to me, there's some very big risks that are not being well managed at the moment. I heard this really good uh, phrase that how things are is starting to become something in the rear vision mirror. And th there's no way of not going forward because when you've got a few people who died and 5,000 people have got sick in Havelock North, that's extremely significant. So I think that the waters are very turbulent at the moment. It's not calm and there's whirlpools of different aspects floating around and it's a rough sea and a long way to go before any degree of smooth waters in the transition to a new way of managing water in New Zealand. That's it for today. I'm Jessie Chang. The detail is brought to you by newsroom.co.nz and made possible by RNZ and NZ On Air. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. And if you're using Apple, leave us a rating so other people can find us too. Today's episode was engineered by Jeremy Ansell and produced by Alexia Russell. And thanks to Peter McKinley and Susan Botting. Matewa. Matewa.